All right, everybody, it's good to see you all. It has been a while since we've been able to get back into our series, The Volume of the Book, um, The Volume of the Book series. And uh, I'm going to ask if you would do, do me a favor and turn in your Bibles to the book of Joel, to the book of Joel. And you can also get 2 Kings chapter 11, Second uh, Kings chapter 11 queued up. We're going to be in both of those passages um, this morning. I do want to give us a running start, and by, me, I'm, by running start, I mean running start. We're going to cover a lot of ground uh, rather quickly because we have a lot of, of things to look at. It is good to see you all. You glad to be here? I, uh, I leaned over to Dave Shelby just a little bit ago. I said, it's almost like there's a football game or something later on today. Everybody's got their Chiefs gear on and, and uh, you know, some are more excited about the halftime show or seeing Taylor Swift or the food or the commercials or the, the game or whatever. It doesn't really matter. It's a, it's a cultural phenomenon is what the Super Bowl is. And so I, I hope you have a blast. Have a, have a good time enjoying that with your families and friends and all those type of things. Um, Joel chapter 1 is where I'd like you to queue up, but I want to remind you of Psalm 40 in verse 7. Psalm 40 in verse 7. It says, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. So we, we've got our sermon or our, our series title from Psalm 40 in, in verse 7 where Jesus is quoted as saying this, and I know you're thinking, well, Jesus wasn't alive when the Psalms were written. You're right, it wasn't, and yet it's God speaking. And Hebrews says that was Jesus speaking in, in Psalm 40. And so Jesus is saying, hey, when you read your Bible, it's all about me. It's always about me. They are all about me, so you need to understand the volume of the book. And so we decided as pastors, we decided, okay, what, what would be a good series for us to do especially since you have a lot of younger believers, newer believers who aren't necessarily familiar with their Bible. Okay, well, let's give you a bird's eye view of the scriptures. So we're trying to do a Genesis to Revelation overview. And there's a temptation for this guy to get way down into the weeds, just so you know. And uh, it's a hard thing for me to do big overviews and, and large portions of scripture. Um, but it's, it's a wise thing for us to do. So our message title today is The Slow Fade. The slow fade, and that'll make sense here in just a little bit. Um, but uh, when when uh, when we get to Second Kings chapter eleven, we need to understand kind of what's going on in this book. It's uh, the main storyline between Kings and Chronicles. It follows David's lineage all the way to Jesus Christ, and so that's what we're doing. So as you're reading your Bibles and you come to First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. They kind of, First and Second Chronicles repeats what you just read in Samuel and Kings. And so you're like, wait, I think I just read that. What well, you did. But in Chronicles, it focuses on the positive side and, and really kind of streamlines. It gives you the Cliff Notes version of what's going on and the, really follows the lineage of David because that's the seed line that Jesus Christ comes from. So you need to understand that. So let me give you Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. 2 Samuel chapter 7, in verse 12, it says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, look at this is what God says to David, I will set up thy seed after thee. So he's like, hey, this doesn't end with you, David. I'm going to set up your seed after thee. Now he's literally talking about 
Solomon, but he's also talking about his seed line following him. Chapter 7, verse 16 says this, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. This is often called the Davidic covenant. Where God says, okay, David, I'm starting, I'm, I'm starting with you. I'm, you are going to be the head of this throne. And there's going to be somebody from your lineage sit on the throne. And that kingdom's never going to come to an end. And so when you're reading the first and second Kings Chronicles, that's what he's talking about. And so we left the story off in chapter 10 with a guy named Jehu. And uh, we'll pick it back up with him here in just a few moments, but just understand kind of what's going on. The kingdom is divided in two, right? You have 10 northern tribes, that's the nation of Israel. You have the two southern tribes, that's Judah and Benjamin, they're to the south. And one's rooted in Samaria, that's Israel. One's rooted down in Jerusalem, and that is Judah. And David's line is down in Judah. Israel is kind of having this false kingdom kind of run concurrent with what's going on down in the south. So I made mention we left off with this Yehu named Yehu. That's what I have written in my, note, in my notes, this Yehu named Jehu. And uh, what you find is in, at the end of chapter 10, he has killed both the king of Israel and the king of Judah. He slays both of them, and then he takes over the throne in, in, in Israel. And, uh, um, and there's also a major shift that happens in between chapter 10 and chapter 11 of 2 Kings. Because what you find is Elijah and Elisha have been kind of running concurrent throughout all of this, and God's been interacting with the, with the prophets, with the kings, and there's a whole lot of back and forth. And it shifts here in chapter 11, really through the end of the book, where there is a little bit of interaction with the prophets, but not so much. Now the focus is on the written word of God. And so if you're familiar with how your Bible lays out, you have Genesis all that's through Deuteronomy, and then you have your historical books, Joshua, all the way to the end of Second Chronicles. Um, and then you have Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and, and Job, and Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. But then you get to Isaiah all the way to Malachi, right? Those prophets. And listen, I love you so much that we're not going to just dive into all those prophets all at once. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to attempt, and I say attempt, we're going to attempt to take those prophets and intermingle them in with the story, right? And so every week for the next few weeks, we're going to have the exact same points, right? So if you're into taking notes, you're like, I got some other stuff in there for you, but we're going to pretty much have the exact same points. And here's what they are, and we don't need to have them up on the screen yet. Um, it's it's uh, what is God saying to his people? What is What are God's people doing? And uh, what, what's God wanting from his people, right? Those kind of the three points we're going to have over the next few weeks, right? Um, in fact, let's, let's go ahead and pull that first one up. What is God saying to his people? What is God saying to his people? And we're going to find that the prophet Joel is the one who's writing during this time of 2 Kings chapter 11, verses 11 through 14. Now, I do need to make a caveat. Josh is reminding me of this. So I do need to make a caveat on this. So if you, are in the, if you have your study sheets, at the very bottom, there should be a third point. It's not there. So if I forget to tell it to you, just write it down. You'll, you'll figure it out. It's very simple. I already, I already gave you what that third point is. What is God wanting from his people, right? So that should be at the very end of your study sheet. I was just tired and missed it. Sorry, I apologize. But also the notice that I've got a bunch of lessons there, and we're going to intermingle those in the midst of all this as well. I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. 
Uh, let me pray, and we're going to dive right in. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak. Lord, use me mightily to get your, your truth across. Lord, um, a lot of what we're going to be talking about, um, the danger would be to approach it as a history book. The danger would be just to approach this as getting information. But Lord, I pray that we, were, uh, that we will be transformed by the truths that are contained in these, wor- in these pages, in these chapters, in these verses, in your individual words. Lord, may we dive in and understand what your word says so we can know what you mean and so we can make proper application to our lives. We ask all this in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So, the question on the table is, what is God saying to his people? So let's keep chapters 11 to 14 queued up, but go to Joel chapter 1. How long has it been since you've been in the prophet Joel? Been a hot second? Been a minute? You're like, I don't know that I've ever read the prophet Joel. Well, you're not going to read all of it today either, but we're going to get a Cliff's Notes version of it. And I encourage you to, to spend some time in those prophets, but every one of those minor prophets... Hosea and Joel, William, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, name, all the way to Malachi, they're all about the second coming of Christ. Some of them are addressed to Gentiles. Some of them are addressed to, Jew, to, the, to the nation of Israel. Some addressed specifically to Judah. Some addressed to the whole world, right? All right, so Joel chapter one, verse one, it says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Look what he says. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear. All ye inhabitants of the land, hath this been in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Now pay attention, verse three. Tell ye your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children another generation. Verse four, that which the palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten and that which the locust hath um, Sorry, hath left, hath the canker worm eaten, and, and that which the canker worm hath left, hath the caterpillar eaten. And, all right, so there's a lot going on there, but we're not going to take a whole lot of time to unpack it. But the next point I have for you is that Joel talks about the people's demise. Joel talks about the people's demise. That's what's happening here in verses one to four. And what you find there in verse three, he tells them, You need to address this with your children and not just your children, but your children's children and then their children. He mentions four different generations in verse three. Four different generations are mentioned in verse three. And so what you're gonna find is their demise is a generational slow fade. That's what you're seeing in verse three. He says, hey, you need to tell your kids and make sure that your kids tell, the, tell their kids and make sure that their kids tell the next, next kids. In other words, you need to have a four generational mindset that this is gonna play out over generations. It's a generational slow fade. And what you're gonna find here is the nation of Israel is a great illustration of what it looks like for a believer to slowly fade away from following the Lord. That's what's happening. God is speaking to his people. God's people are responding however they respond. And then we're gonna look at the end. How does God want his people to respond? And man, you might be thinking 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. I don't have it up on the screen. He says, that which thou hast... Um, so he says, that which I have... How does 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2? It's like we quote it all the time. I can't even quote it right now. Where Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, those things that I've given you, I want you to give to faithful men and those faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So you got four generations there as well. Man, you should always be thinking generationally. So there's a generational slow fade. But then he says this in verse 4. Uh, you're going to be slowly eaten away. 
right? He mentions the palmer worm and the locust and the canker worm and, and the caterpillar. One's going to devour, them, the next one's going to come in and devour, them, the next one is going to come in and devour. So not only is there a generational fade, there's also a national fade away. There's nationally fade away that they're going to be just cons- slowly consumed, right? So he talks about their demise, but here's the next point. Joel uh, talks about the people's removal. So here's how bad it's going to get. They're going to get so deteriorated that a f- another nation is going to come in and devour them and carry them captive. Verse 5, he says, awake, ye drunkards, and weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are as the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste and barked my, what's the next, next two words? Fig tree. And hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. So he talks about their remo- removal. This other nation is going to come in and and lead them out, all right? So we know the, the northern tribes are taken out by the Assyrians in 725 B.C. Well, a few, few years later, the 606 B.C. to 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in, and they take the southern tribes out. And so they do get removed, and they're going to be carried away into another nation. But I want you to notice this fig tree, and just make note of this, And we're going to address this on Wednesday night. If you ever want to be a part of that, we're addressing it this Wednesday night. The fig tree represents the nation of Israel. It it represents national Israel, where the olive tree represents spiritual Israel. The fig tree represents national Israel. And he says, hey, this fig tree is going to be barked. In other words, stripped naked. It's going to be laid bare. It's going to be revealed, nothing hidden. And that's exactly what happens to the nation of Israel. And so Joel says, hey, guys, um, there's going to be demise for you. But not only is there going to be demise, you're going to be removed. And here's how bad it's going to be. Here's the next point. It, Joel talks about their, the temple's destruction. The temple's destruction. Verse 8. He says, lament like a virgin, gird with sackcloth for the husband of the of her youth. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. The field is wasted, the land mourneth, for the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, the, old, the oil languisheth. Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen, howl, O ye vine dressers. Look at, verse, look at uh, verse 13. Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests, howl, ye ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. In other words, the temple is going to be completely destroyed. There's not going to be any worship transpiring in in the land anymore, and that's exactly what happens. When Babylon comes in and destroys Israel and and defeats them, they drag them out, they, they, they cause the entire temple to be destroyed. Now there's no more temple worship happening. He says, you're going to be removed from the land. The temple is going to be destroyed. Oh no, now what? Well, Joel talks about the people's restoration. Joel talks about the people's restoration. Look over here in chapter 2. Chapter 2 in verse 25. Oh, these are hopeful verses. Listen, when you read the prophet Joel, you're like, I'm glad I'm not them, <laughs> right? This is really bad for them. This, is, this isn't going to go well for them. 
Well, in the, in the same chapters, he tells them how he wants them to respond. But, but in Joel chapter 2, look what he says in verse 25. He says, and I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm, the caterpillar, and the pauper worm. Remember those animals we just talked about in chapter 1? God's like, hey, I'm able to restore that. That, that restoration is coming. He says in verse 26, and ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else and my people shall never be ashamed. And so he's like, hey, you may have been demised. You may have been despised. There may be your demise and your destruction, but I'm able to restore you. Man, there's great peace in that because maybe you're one of those today. You're in a spot where I just feel like I'm so far away from the Lord, like, I don't know that I can get it back. Well, just inspirationally, let me just give you verse 25. God's able to restore that which is eaten. He can bring it back. Now, you may look a little different. You may have a different step in you. You might even have some scars from your bad decision, but I'm just telling you, God is able to restore and God's able to heal. Amen? Hey, God is able to do just that. All right, now, something you need to know um, if you're studying out Joel this week that five times you're going to find the phrase, the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord shows up numerous times in Scripture, five times in, in the prophet Joel. This is the one prophet. This is the, this is the prophet that speaks the most about the day of the Lord. That's the second coming of Christ. And so when, how is God going to restore the nation of Israel? Well, it's going to be on the day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So you're in chapter 2. Look at verse 30. He says, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth and blood and fire and pillars of smoke. You might want to write off to the right side if you're into taking notes. Matthew chapter 24 gives you great illustration of that. He says, verse 31, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Now, we've heard, I love, by the way, I love that you all said saved, because that's what your Bible does say in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Paul quotes Joel in reference to the nation of Israel being delivered and restored, and he makes a spiritual application for us in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. The only word that gets changed is from delivered to saved. I think that's amazing. So whosoever is called upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. And that, that points to the Jews being restored during that time of tribulation to the second coming where two-thirds of the Jewish people do not call on the name of the Lord. They lose their lives and only one-third make it. Only a third of them actually call on the name of the Lord. You can read about that in the book of Zechariah. All right, so look at verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. And for behold, in those days, that's the tribulation, and in that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. He's going to bring them back. He says, I'm going to gather all nations and will gather them into the valley of Jehoshaphat. All right, skip over to verse 6. He says, the children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have you sold in the Grecians, that you might remove them far from their border. Behold, I will raise them out of the place whether you have sold them and will return your recompense unto your own head. All right, so what happens? The nation of Israel gets taken captive. Just give me a history lesson, just for a moment, just so we're all on the same page. The nation of Israel gets taken captive. The Judah gets taken captive. 
Judah is allowed to be restored back 70 years later. That's the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, right? So they're able to go back, and that's the remnant of the Jews who are back in the land is what you read about when you open up Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. That's the remnant that has gone back. The rest of them have been dispersed. We have not heard from them again until 1948. You see, those Jews that are in the land when Jesus is there, they get taken captive in 70 AD and they get dispersed across the entire planet. And in 1948, they were able to go back into the land. How many of you were alive in 1948? I was not. I wasn't even a gleam in my mom's eye because she wasn't born either, right? But in 19, listen, if you were alive in 1948, you saw the beginnings of the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? You were alive as God's prophecy is being fulfilled. That blows my mind. That's really, really, really cool. So he promises to restore them. Verse 16, he says, The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall you know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. That's Jesus sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. All right, so that is what God is saying to his people. But here's the next point. What are God's people doing? What are his people doing? Because this is an illustration, just like I said a little bit ago, of what a slow fade looks like. This is what God's people, this is what God's saying to them. And notice what happens with what God's people are actually doing. Go to 2 Kings chapter 11. Don't lose your spot in Joel. We'll probably go back there toward the end. 2 Kings chapter 11. Now, we're going to look at this rather quick because we don't have time to get into all the details, but I do want you to at least have an idea of what's happening in these chapters. So 2 Kings chapter 11, here's what's happening. The royal seed line is, is attacked. The royal seed line is attacked. You remember I told you about this Yehu named Jehu? Remember that guy? So Jehu has killed the king of Israel and taken his throne. He's killed the king of Judah and left his throne a mess, and that, that, that guy's mom takes over. Her name is Athaliah. You see this in verse 1. It says, And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, look at this, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. All the seed royal. What does that mean? All those that had claim to the throne, all those that had claimed it could be anointed king, she kills. You know what she's thinking? She thinks that she's made null and void that Davidic covenant. Remember that Davidic covenant that we read about? Hey, David, there's always going to be somebody from your line on the throne. And she takes it over and she kills all these kids. I mean, she goes nuts. Can you imagine like flipping a switch like that? Just like, woof. I think I'm going to take over, and which means you're all going to die. That's exactly what happens. So she kills all the royal seed that had claimed to the throne. Now, let me give you lesson one. That's at the bottom of your sheet. Lesson one. The world system 
is seeking to destroy the next generation. There's always an attack on the seed line, isn't there? Always an attack on the seed line. And the world system is seeking to destroy the next generation. Is that true? You understand that? Because if you don't understand that, that right there is where the slow fade happens. Because a slow fade says, you know, I see what the world is trying to do, or sorry, uh, somebody who's vigilant sees what the world's trying to do, and they instruct the next generation. Here's what a lot of, here's what a lot of Christians do. We try to shelter our kids and protect our kids so that they don't get indoctrinated. And is that a good thing? Hello, church. Is that a good thing? Yes, I think you should shelter and protect your kids. But what's even better is to instruct your kids, to let them know what's coming, to let them know what's happening. A great illustration of that would be the book of Daniel, right? The first chapter of the book of Daniel would be a great illustration of that, where they're literally taken captive and they're wanting to squash them and defeat them. And the, there were four dudes who stood up and said, no, we're going to do what's right. Well, why'd they do that? Because somebody had poured into them the Word of God and instructed them. Listen, we can shelter all day long, but our job is to instruct them and prepare them for this attack because the world system is seeking to destroy the next generation. No doubt about it. So she kills everybody. Ah, 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 not so fast. Not everyone. Look at verse two. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons, which were slain, and they hid him, even him and his nurse, in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. So here's grandma, kills all her grandkids, all her grandsons, and they kill them. Grandma flipped, flipped the switch. I don't know. Something happened with grandma. She went off the rails, right? She kills all her grandsons except one. Because Jehoshaphat says, I'm going to at least save this one who's about a year old, not even a year old, rescues him and takes him, um, and, and, and takes him into the temple. Look at verse 3. And he was with her hid in the house of the Lord, look at this, six years. And Athaliah did reign over the land. So this Athaliah is wicked, and she's ruling over the land. But Jehoshaphat rescues Joash. Well, then you have the priest of the Lord who's got this little boy just growing up in the temple. This priest of the Lord is like, I can't hide him forever, right? I can't hide this kid forever. So when he gets about six to seven years old, he calls everybody around and, and does this hush-hush so that Athaliah can't hear about it. And he makes sure that Joash is now established to be the rightful king in the seventh year. Interesting, verse 4. And in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and fetched the rulers over hundreds with the captains and the guard and brought them to him into the house of the Lord and made a covenant with them and took an oath of them in the house of the Lord. And look at this, and showed them the king's son. Now, can you imagine? They're in this kingdom. They're doing their thing. They have to submit to this, this wicked woman, Athaliah. And then they come and they're like, why are we here at the house of the Lord? Why do you want us here? And he goes, well... You just almost like picture the little kid coming out from behind him. is like, hey, here's the king. Well, man, that changes everything, doesn't it? So they hide the king and then they reveal the king. Verse 11. So they anoint him king and the guards stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, round about the king. 
from the right corner of the temple to the left corner of the temple along by the altar of the temple. And he brought forth the king's son and put the crown upon him and gave him the testimony and they made him king and anointed him and, and they clapped their hands and said, God save the king. Well, you ain't hiding that no more. Athaliah hears about it. She's like, oh no, what's going on? Treason. She yells treason. You see that at the end of verse 14. She's yelling treason and all these type of things. Look at verse 14. Let's just read it. And when she looked, behold, the king stood by an altar as the manor was and the princes and the trumpeters by the king and all the people of the land rejoiced and blew with trumpets and Athaliah rent her clothes and cried, treason, treason. I was just like, I can't do a female voice, but I can imagine it not being very pretty when she's yelling all this, they can't be good. And look at verse 16, and they lay hands on her and she went by the way which the horses come into the king's house, and there she was slain. She was slain there. Look at verse 18. And all the people of the land went into the house of Baal and break it down, his altars and his images, and break, break they in pieces thoroughly and slew Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And so Jehoiada is now established as the rightful king in the seventh year. Interesting. When does Jesus get anointed as king over the whole realm? It's in the seventh day, isn't it? It's in that 7,000th year. We're in the end of the 6,000 years of human history, but on the seventh day, he's coming again. What day? The day of the Lord, the seventh day, that day, he's coming again. Man, I, I, I love that. So Athaliah gets killed, and maybe off to, the note, off to the side in your notes, you might want to just write this down. We don't have time to look at that, but she is a type of mystery Babylon, that harlot that you read about in Revelation chapter 17, who slays the saints, who rides on a beast. Mystery Babylon, this, this, this antichrist system, Oh, by the way, she's in bed with Baal, the false prophet. You see the satanic trinity right there in 2 Kings chapter 11. That's a fun study. But let me give you your lesson two. Here's lesson two. We have the responsibility to reveal the rightful heir to the throne. We have that same responsibility because we know who the rightful king is. His name is Jesus. He's king of kings and he's lord of lords. And this whole world system is bent towards destroying that seed line. They tried to kill him, and they, he, he couldn't stay dead. He had to raise again. But it's our job in this day and age, during the 6,000 years of human history, it's our job to reveal who the true heir is. His name is Jesus. That's our job. And you know what's interesting? Only a select remnant are willing to do it. We're only told of two who actually spend time in the kingdom hiding this young boy. Jehoiada, the priest, and Jehosheba, his aunt. Now, everybody is, is celebrating. They're all happy about it, except the one who really wants the throne, right? Gets destroyed. And man, I love it. On the day of the Lord, he's coming back, and he will take the throne. And we have that same responsibility. Man, be one of the faithful remnant. Open your mouth and reveal who the rightful heir is. Amen? Amen.
That'll preach. Man, I wish I had time. I have in my notes. Keep moving. All right, go to chapter 12. Go to chapter 12. Because in chapter 12, the, the temple is prioritized. Well, that sounds great. The temple gets prioritized. And so Joash, he's now called Jehoash in verse 4, chapter 12 and verse 4. He grew up in this temple, and he, he wants to see the temple fixed, right? He's, he's, he's grown up. He's like, man, they, nobody takes care of anything in this place. This, thing's, this place has fallen apart, man. And so he tasked the priest to raise money and repair the temple. Look at verse 4. And Jehoash said to the priest, all the money of the dedicated things that is brought into the house of the Lord, even the money of everyone that passeth the account, the money that every man is set at, and all the money that cometh in, in, into any man's heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priest take it to them, every man of his acquaintance, and let them repair the breaches of the house, wheresoever any breach shall be found. So what's the job of the priest? King says, okay, guys, got a job for you. The money that comes in, Set it off, that's a building fund. We're gonna, we're gonna repair the breaches of the house. Here's the problem. The priests don't do it. They do not do it. They're just like, hey, business as usual. We're just gonna conduct, conduct ministry as usual. They don't wanna add anything else to their schedule. And so they're just gonna wait until the funds just get right or unless somebody holds them accountable. Well, here comes the king, verse six. But it was so that in the three and 20th year of King Jehoash, the priest, had not repaired the breaches of the house. He's like, what's up, dudes? Why aren't you fixing this place? Why aren't you getting this done? You can see that in, in verse seven. He's like, you gotta get after it. You gotta get this done. And so the priests were happy to raise money, but they just didn't, they didn't repair the breaches of the house. In other words, they didn't look around going, this needs fixed and this needs fixed and this needs fixed. They just walked around going, we'll get around to it sometime when somebody else will do this. They just didn't wanna add anything else to their schedule. And so they just conducted ministry as usual, and the king calls them out on it. He says, no, that's not how we're going to do. Well, Jehoiada takes it upon himself, verse 9, to actually do this thing. And so Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in the lid of it and set it beside the altar on the right side as one cometh into the house of the Lord. And the priest that kept the door put therein all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. Time out. I don't talk about giving ever as a pastor because... We just deal with it as we come across in a text. Have you noticed, if you've been coming for a hot second, we don't pass a plate? Have you ever noticed that? Why don't, why, don't, why don't we pass a plate? I think this is one of the reasons right here. We have a box back there and a box back there. If you're a guest, no, we don't have any expectation for you to be a participant of this. If you're a member, you're here. Okay, we, there is an expectation there, but that's between you and Jesus. It's between you and the Lord, Amen. And so that's, that's why we do it the way that we do it. We don't pass the plate. I just, Jesus does that with the, with the woman who just puts her two mites in. He watches. There's, there's a tub. There's, we just don't do that. And we just trust the Lord and trust that you're mature. All right, so moving on. We'll get into this. Let me, Jehoiada takes it upon himself. So he raises the money. You see that in verses 11 and 12. To, and he repairs the temple, all right? So we take, end of verse 11, he gets, and they laid it out to the carpenters and the builders and wrought upon the house of the Lord and to the masons and the hewers of stone and to, to buy timber and huge stone to repair the breaches of the house of the Lord for all that was laid out of the house to repair it. So he becomes general contractor and says, okay, we got to get this done. And they get it fixed, but I want you to see what happens in verse 13. How be it? 
There were not made for the house of the Lord bowls of silver, snuffers, basins, trumpets, any vessels of gold or vessels of silver or of the money that was brought to the house of the Lord. In other words, he neglects to make the instruments for worship. So he gets the house right, but worship isn't right. Sound familiar? Here's your next lesson, lesson number three. It's possible to prioritize your temple and completely neglect true worship. By the way, you are the temple of God if your spirit of God is inside of you. The spirit of God rests inside of you. The Bible says that you are the temple of God. Well, take care of the temple. Dave Shelby, you were just talking about this this morning. He goes, I wanna run. I just don't wanna be later in life and, and glued to a, a couch, right? I don't wanna be stuck. I wanna be able to, to serve the Lord. Well, that's great. So take care of the temple. Find the priest. Let's handle that. God's convicted me about that. But not at the expense of worship. The reason we fix the temple is so we can engage in worship. And it's very easy to be so focused on our health and so focused on our temple and making sure that it's right that we neglect true worship. You see, what happens is Joash has grown up in this temple and he wants to see it fixed, but he's not necessarily interested in using it for worship. Don't be guilty of that, right? Y'all with me? Yeah, let's, let's get a hold of that one. Verse 17. You're in chapter 12, look at verse 17. It says, Then Haziel, the king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath, and he took it, and Haziel set his face to go up to Jerusalem. So the king of Syria comes in, he's already taken out Israel, and now he's knocking on their door. And so verse 18, Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the hallowed things that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own hallowed things, and all the gold that was found in the treasures of the house of the Lord, and in the king's house, and sent it to Hazio, king of Syria, and he went away from him. So the king of Syria comes in to attack Jerusalem, but instead of fighting, they buy him off. They buy him off financially. And how'd they do that? Well, they sacrifice temple worship in order to avoid the battle. That's what happens. They go broke physically and they go broke spiritually. It's a slow fade, isn't it? So the slow fade, I'm going to focus on the object or the place of my worship instead of who I worship or how I worship. That's the problem here. So if you begin to realize maybe I'm in a slow fade, okay, then your priority has been the location of worship instead of who you worship or how you worship. Be careful. You see, when you make the decision that we're just going to fix the place and not handle the instruments of worship, it's really easy to give it away. It's when things happen and enemy begins to attack, right? Your three enemies, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. When they attack, what do we do? was the very first thing that tends to go away? Worship. Because we sacrifice worship so we don't have to engage in battle. Be mindful of that. Go to chapter 13. Chapter 13. Because in chapter 13, Israel followed Jeroboam's influence. That's what's happening here. They follow Jeroboam's influence and find out, man, Jeroboam, remember when the, when the kingdom split from Solomon? You had Rehoboam to the south and Jeroboam to the north. And Jeroboam, he causes the people to sin. 
And, and, the, and, and what he found important, the rest of the generations of the nation of Israel find important. And what you find here in chapter 13 is Jeroboam's influence is all over this. So 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 28 to 30. 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 28 to 30 says, Whereupon the king took counsel, this is Jeroboam, and he made two calves of gold and said unto them, It it is too much for you to go up to to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods of O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 29. And he he set the one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan, and this thing became a sin. Verse 30, and this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. So he sets up these false idols, the calves, which is a very interesting thing, which is Baal worship that Athaliah is doing, right? So he sets up these calves, says, hey, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. No, Jehovah God brought me out of Egypt. He says, ah, it's easier if you just go to worship over here. So the nation of Israel says, okay, we're just going to go to Dan and worship instead of going to the temple. All right, so chapter 13, look at verse 1. In the three and twentieth year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria and reigned 17 years. And notice this, he did that which was evil on the side of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. He's like, man, it's a lot easier to follow Jeroboam's line than it is to follow David's line. And so he follows in the sins of Jeroboam. Well, Jehoiaz has a son named Joash, not the same Joash we just read about, a different Joash. And so look at verse 10. In the 30 and seventh year, Joash, king of Judah, began Jehoash, the son of Jehoash, to reign over Israel and Samaria and reigned 16 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but he walked therein. So he does the exact same thing his daddy does. Daddy walked in the, in the ways of Jeroboam, therefore I'm gonna walk in the ways of Jeroboam. And here's how bad it gets. Joash even names his son Jeroboam. That's crazy. Look at verse 13. Joash slept with his fathers and Jeroboam sat upon his throne. Now Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. So Joash is so in love and enamored with the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he names his own son Jeroboam. I think that's crazy. All right, so this is interesting. This is interesting. Look at verse 14. So Joash visits Elisha. Elisha is dying. Remember I told you there was a, a shift now in the, in the book where the, the prophets are kind of going off the scenes and now we're dealing with the written word of God. So Elisha is sick and he's, he's about to die. Joash, the king of Israel, comes down to visit him. Look at verse, verse 14. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness wherever he died and Joash, the, son, the king of Israel, Israel came down unto him and wept over his face. And pay attention to what he says. He says, oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. I mean, that's a weird way to go visit somebody in the hospital, isn't it? You just walk in, you follow on going, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. That's kind of weird until you understand what's he doing. Well, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 12, we don't have time to go there. That's exactly what Elisha said word for word when Elijah was carried up in a whirlwind. So Elisha 
Elisha quotes and says, when Elijah's tarried off in the, in the whirlwind, he goes, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel, the horsemen thereof. Well, somewhere along the line, Joash has heard about this. And he quotes him word for word. In other words, what he's implying is, you know that devil spirit that you got from Elijah? I want some of that too. He's expecting to be blessed by this, by this prophet. Well, Elisha has a few things to say in him, and prophets are just weird, just so you know. You want to hang out with this one? I'm not a prophet. I don't foretell the future, but uh, I foretell the Word of God, but we're all weird. And the very next thing out of his mouth is, hey, uh, get some arrows. Get a bow and get some arrows. And all the dudes are like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. Get an arrow. Shoot it. And he goes, and he took him bows and arrows, verse 16, and he said unto the king of Israel, put thine hand upon the bow and put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it and Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for thou shalt smite the, smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou hast consumed them. So he tells them, shoot the arrow out the window. Why am I doing that? Because it's, it's a representation of what's going to happen. You're going to destroy the Syrians and you're going to utterly consume them. And the next thing he does, he says, grab some arrows in your hand and smack them on the ground. Well, why am I doing that? You'll find out. Verse 18, he said, take the arrows. And he took them and he said unto the king of Israel, smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. And the man of God was wroth with him and said, thou shouldst have smitten five or six times. Then hast thou smitten Syria till thou hast consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria, but thrice. Verse 25 tells you that's exactly what happens. He smites Syria only three times. All right, so he quotes Elisha's words back to him. Elisha says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're gonna take on the, Assyri the, the Syrians and you can utterly defeat them. Take some, take some arrows and smack them on the ground. Let's, let's see how serious you are about this. He goes, bam, bam, bam. He's like, dude, you should have like five or six times. You had no faith in this. Your hesitance has caused you to miss out on total victory. You see that in verse 25. Let me give you lesson four. Lesson four. Your life will always go the way you've directed your faith. Your life is always going to, the way, going to go the way you have directed your faith. In other words, you live what you believe. You say, well, I've got faith in the Lord. That's evident in the way you carry yourself. That's evident in the way you follow the Lord. That's evident in everything you do. You live the way you believe. And so your life is always going to go the way you have directed your faith. So if you're going to be one that's caught up in that slow faith, then you're going to rely on religion and platitudes. You rely on personal wisdom. You're going to be hindered by your hesitation. But in Matthew chapter 9, verse 29 says this, according to your faith, be it unto you. St. Miles put it this way. You're, it depends on where your faith is set to, where your want to is set to. That's how it's going to play out for you, man. We can learn a lot from this Joash. When God tells him specifically, you're going to defeat them and consume them in verse 17. But his response to that is hesitation. And because he hesitated, he wasn't able to consume them. What does the word of God say? As you're studying the word of God, as you are personally in the interacting with the word of God, do you believe it to be 100% true? And if you do, then it's evident in the way you carry yourself. You're going to walk by faith and not by sight. That's exactly what happens here. So your life is always going to go the way you direct your faith. Chapter 14. In chapter 14, Judah 
chose a season of violence. Judah chose a season of violence. He chose violence. Yep, that's exactly what happens. So let's leave Israel to the north. Let's go back down to the southern kingdom in our minds and go here to, to Judah. So Joash is dead and Amaziah takes over the throne, verse 1. In the second year of Joash, son of Jehoaz, king of Israel, reigned Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. All right, so he takes over the throne. His dad had been, by the way, we didn't read it, but his dad had just been killed, right? They assassinated him to remove him from, from being king. So he, all he knows is, my dad was just killed for this. And there's something that happens inside of him where he becomes bitter. There's something that happens inside of him where he just, he, he fleshes out in violence, right? So he focuses now on trying to solidify his place within God's kingdom. In other words, he's seeking to maintain his position. Hold on to that. That's what's happening here. He's maintaining his position, verse 5. And it came to pass, as soon as the kingdom was confirmed in his hand, that he slew his servants, which had slain the king his father. So he has his father's killers killed, verse 7. He attacks Edom down in the south. He slew of Edom in the valley of salt, 10,000, and took Selah by war, and called the name of it Jachthiel unto this day. Now, if you're a Bible student, you would understand that Jacob is Israel, Esau is Edom, right? So Jacob and Esau were twin brothers, right? They had, and Jacob becomes Israel, Esau becomes Edom, and so he attacks Esau. He attacks Edom to the south, kind of a distant relationship that he's got with these people. They're not necessarily friends. But let me give you lesson five. Lesson five. Contention flows out of a desire for position. So if there's contention in your life, if there's contention happening in some way, some shape, then it flows out of a desire for position. You see, the slow fade here is we begin fighting battles that God hasn't led us to fight, right? What happens when we get bitter? What happens when things aren't going necessarily our way? And I want to make sure that I am, I'm in the spot that I want to be in. Well, necessarily that brings in conflict, doesn't it? And when there's conflict, there's contention. And what's the contention? It's a desire for position. And I end up starting to fight people that God hasn't told me to fight. He hasn't, I end up just, I become a brawler, right? I'm always up in arms. I'm always wanting to fight the next person. You want, you next? You, you, got, you want some of this? Just this attitude all the time. Be careful. Because Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10 says, only by pride cometh contention. But with the well-advised is wisdom. So if there's contention, somebody's in pride. All right, so he takes, he kills his father's killers. He, he takes on Edom. But then he turns his attention to the north and says, what's up, bro? Let's duke this thing out. He goes to the king of Israel and says, let's look at each other face to face. In other words, manho, imano, let's get after this thing. You bring your army, I'll bring my army, we'll figure this thing out. And the king of Israel says, you don't want none, son. You want none of this. You're barking up a tree that you can't climb. Don't, don't write a check that you can't cash, right? It's like, you want none of this. 
Look at this in uh, verse, verse 10. This is what the king of Israel says back to him. He says, Thou hast indeed smitten Edom, and thine heart hath lifted thee up. Glory of this, and tarry at home. Right? Enjoy your victory over there. Don't be trying to drag that over here, he says. He says, For why shouldest thou meddle to thy hurt? You're meddling that thou shouldest fall, even thou and Judah with thee. He's like, listen, you, you step up to me. I won't make sure you pay the price. You, want, you don't want none of this. Well, his pride wouldn't let him listen. Verse 11, but Amaziah would not hear. You ever been around somebody who's so full of pride, they, they just can't tell him nothing. They wouldn't hear. Therefore, Joash, Jehoash, the king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, looked one another into the face at Bethshemesh, which belonged to Judah. And Judah was put to the worst before Israel, duh, and they fled every man to their tents. He's fighting a battle he's not supposed to be fighting. In other words, he's fighting against his own brethren. Judah and Israel, they're related. They're family, man. And they're lashing out one at another. And so he's, he's fighting an enemy God hasn't told him to be fighting. That never happens in churches, does it? So Judah's put to the worst, verse 13, and Jehoash, king of Israel, took Amaziah, king of Judah, and the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Bethshemesh, and came to Jerusalem. He's like, I told you, I'm coming, I'm knocking on your door now. You should have stayed home behind your door, but now I'm knocking on your door. So he comes to Jerusalem, he breaks down the wall of, of, of Jerusalem with the gate of Ephraim, under the corner gate, 400 cubits, and he took all, look at this, he took all the gold and silver of the, of the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord, and in the treasure of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. Told you what was going to happen. Sure enough, you, you, you didn't stay home like I told you to, and now you just lost it. So Judah loses this battle. And what does it do? It affects his wealth because all his riches are taken. It affects his relationships. Hostages are taken. And it affects his worship. The vessels were taken. He loses everything. It's a slow fade begins to lose it all. And what happens to Amaziah? The people say, we ain't dealing with this. And so they take him out, verse 19. Verse 19, it says, now they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and slew him there. In other words, he's holding on to this position and he's removed from his position. He's removed from his position as king. Let me give you lesson number six. Pride will always lead to your ultimate demise. Pride will always lead to your ultimate demise. I have a feeling you're going to see that fleshed out on your screen today as you're watching this game. Some team's going to get lifted up in pride and think they're going to be able to pull something off, something cute. Like, stop running the ball. I'm going to pass. Sorry. Come back to myself. They run trick plays. They're going to be doing all this type of stuff. Somebody's going to get lifted up in pride. Says, watch me. I'm cute. There's going to be a pick six. Somebody's going to do something stupid. Sure enough, that's exactly what's going to happen. Listen. So what happens in your life is what happens in mine. Because pride will always lead us to our ultimate demise. Here's what the slow fate is. When you have such a desire to be right instead of being righteous. When your desire is to always be right 
We end up fighting battles that we should never fight. You ever heard the phrase, choose your battles? You shouldn't always, I mean, if everything's a battle for you, if everything's a fight, you're full of pride. I love you, but you're full of pride. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he sinneth, think heed lest he fall. Proverbs 16, verse 18, often quoted, misquoted, often. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So here's the point that's not on your sheet, and I'll give it to you really quick. What is God wanting his people to do? This will go quick. I got the verses up on the screen. Joel chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Look what Joel says to him. Remember everything Joel said to him. Here's the response that God wants. Here's the, God, here's the response that God is expecting. In other words, respond spiritually, sound the alarm and repent. Sanctify ye fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders of all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord, verse 15. And last for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. In other words, oh no, this is what God's saying and look at the state of which I'm at. What do I do? Repent, but don't do it alone. Grab some others beside you. Pull others into your world. Pull others into your life. I say, will you help me respond to this spiritually? Chapter two, verse 12. Chapter two, verse 12, it says, therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with meat, weeping and with mourning, verse 13, and rend your heart and not your garments. What did Athaliah do? She rent her garments. What should we do? Rend our hearts. God's more interested in your heart than he is your action. And turn to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. Stop, time out. We're gonna come back to this verse next week. This verse is super important. He's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Verse 14, who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Who knows what would have played out if they would have just repented? If they would have just rent their hearts. But in other words, they dug their heels in, says, I'll figure this out on my Oh, chapter two, verse 15 to 17, this world will close. So individually, they're supposed to repent, but corporately, they're supposed to repent. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly, verse 16. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet, verse 17. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep before the porch of the altar and let them say, spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore shouldst thou say among the people, where's their God? You see, as the nation of Israel is doing this slow fade, the heathen looking going, ha, 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 I thought they believed in this awesome God. They do, they're just not following him. I need you to understand this and get this. The Lord is for you. And sometimes that means he's got to be against you. You get that? The Lord, parents, you say that to your kids all the time. You just don't say it. I, I'm, I'm 
tan in your hide because I love you. No kid believes that in that moment, by the way. But it's a reality. Because you love, sometimes you have to be against. But the ultimate goal is to restore, to bring back in, right? And if you're in a spot where you feel like you're just trying to get back to the Lord, a time to repent, you ought to do that individually. But you also ought to do that corporately. You need to bring some other people in and say, hey, I'm, I'm trying to get right. I'm gonna do it on my own. Got some individual things I gotta do, but I need the body of Christ to help, to carry me through this. All right, let's stand together. Aren't you glad we didn't read every single verse? I cut out a lot, just so you know. Next week, because we didn't look at this, you can read this in chapter 14. The prophet Jonah is mentioned in chapter 14. And so next week, we're going to be in the, in the book of Jonah and have a blast. It's just going to be a good time. And so we need the, we need the book of Jonah uh, for sure. All right, it's, it's late. I still want you to respond to the word of God. So let's just take a few seconds. Let's just focus on the Lord. Do some business with the Lord. I'm going to close this in prayer. We'll be dismissed and enjoy each other's company this evening. Lord, that was a lot to, to receive. That was a lot to take in. A lot happening in those chapters. And yet, Lord, it really boils down to the fact, Lord, that you speak and where to respond. And Lord, often our lives don't match up to what you're speaking. So Lord, I pray that we would respond in the way that you would have us to respond, and that's to um, sound the alarm, to repent, and to rend our hearts to be right with you. Lord, so that we can serve you and do the things, Lord, that you've called us to do. And that's to reveal the king, the rightful heir to the throne. His name is Jesus. Lord, I pray that we'd focus on being righteous instead of always being right. Lord, I pray that we would understand, Lord, that this world wants to devour this generation. And Lord, it's our job to speak life into them and encourage them and equip them and give them a sword so they can stand against the wiles of the devil. Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your truth. Jesus, I pray. Amen.